again, just to remind you, we've been looking at the book or the Gospel of Luke in four sections. The introduction of the Son of Man, the ministry of the Son of Man, the rejection of the Son of Man, and then the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of Man. So we're in that last section. And just as a, a reminder that uh, what we're going to do, is, I know that I've had to skip a lot of chapters. When my rotation comes back around, we're going to go back and pick up the chapters that we've been skipping. And, uh, and hopefully still seeing how it all fits together like this. So let's pray and take a look at the resurrection of Christ. Jeff, would you lead us in prayer? Amen. So last week in chapter 23, we didn't quite finish, so I said we'd wrap it up and then go into chapter 24. So just by way of reminder, and looking at Christ on His way to the cross, we saw that there was a change for people to, to know, those, those who had encountered Christ on the way to the cross, there was a change that came into their life. We saw in verse 26 the change for a Simon. Uh, he went in and it, that wasn't his plan that day, but uh, the Lord changed it, and in doing so changed his life. We saw some other verses that refer to this. Then we saw a changed perspective with the women who were crying for Jesus. Then we went on and saw a changed destination with the thief on the cross. He definitely was not on his way to paradise when that day started, but after encountering Jesus, paradise was to be his reality. And then we uh, stopped there, and this is where we would pick up as uh, verses 34 to 38, a changed mind. And what I meant by that is in, um, in verse 47, after he's, been, after he's been crucified, in verse 47 says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And the word innocent meaning righteous. So he saw something that, was, that he didn't see before in Christ. And then uh, the immediate verse after verse 48, it says that the rest of the crowd, so we kind of get an idea of what's going on when we see the centurion responding the way he does. In verse 48, and all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. And this means that it, this, this beating of the breast was a traditional sign of mourning, our contrition, our remorse. So it would appear that they were acknowledging a wrong has been done. It, that would fit the use of the word in chapter 18, verse 13, where the Pharisees praying, uh, you know, beating his breast, and you know, there's remorse there. Now all of this, a changed day, a changed... Uh, perspective, a changed destination, a changed mind because of an unchanging Savior. And what I mean by that is this, the progression in verse 34 of chapter 23. Uh, we see Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And then in verse 43, he says, truly I say to you today you shall be with me in paradise. And then finally in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
He is resolute. He's trusting his father and moving forward in what the father has for him. So all of this change is a reality for those who put their faith in Christ because of an unchanging Savior, an unchanging Messiah. And so this should be our reality. Therefore, those who are in Christ, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. A changed life should be the believer's reality, no matter the circumstances. Our day, our perspective, our destination, our mind should be changed because of an unchanging Savior. How can I say this? Well, because the daily benefit of Jesus dying on the cross is made a reality to us in his life. So we see in the next chapter the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? The resurrection is is almost an afterthought for so many believers. It's, uh, it's just an appendix. It's just, you know, oh yeah, by the way, you know, Jesus isn't dead anymore. But without the resurrection, the benefit of the cross is not known. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 simply puts it this way, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless are useless, empty. You are still in your sins. I uh, appreciate the way C.S. Lewis said it. A dead Christ, I must do everything for. A living Christ does everything for me. Everything that is required of me in my creation, in Christ, in God creating me, becomes a reality in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And so with that, we want to read this chapter. We'll skip some verses because it would take me forever. I'm a slow reader. But then, so we'll read the chapter. We'll come back and look at some of it together. Verse 1, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the tomb, and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene, and Joanna and Mary, the mother of of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
and they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were pre prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Verse 22. But also some women among us amazed us when they, when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Verse 30, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. 33, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, and you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are... Uh, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are, you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising God. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I, like so many Christians, lived for years as though the end of chapter 23 were the end of the gospel. And my life was governed by that. At the end of chapter 23, we see that Christ, having 
died on the cross, is now being buried. They can't finish the burial because of the Sabbath, so they, they simply get everything ready for it, and after the Sabbath, they'll return. And you know, if you had asked me for years, do you believe that Jesus is alive? I'd say, yeah. And you watch how I live, and I would say, no. I lived for years, having placed my faith in Christ, as though Christ were still in the grave. And that the life that God had saved me for in Christ was dependent upon me. And so I would have to admit that I was guilty of seeking the living among the dead. I wonder how many of us in this room could give testimony to the same thing. Listen, chapter 23, the end of chapter 23 is not the end of the story. The next chapter begins with, but... Jesus died on the cross, was buried, but there's more to the story. Christ's death was not the end despite his followers behaving as though it were. How do I, how do I see this? When well, verse 4, after the women have entered the tomb, they, there's no body. And it says they were perplexed, which means to be at a loss, to be uncertain to be anxious, to be in doubt. This is not for those who belong to the crucified, risen Christ. The, the loss and the uncertainty, the anxiousness, this is not for those who belong to Jesus. And we see it throughout the chapter in verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? In verse 11, these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And then in verse 37, thought that they were seeing a spirit. One of the frustrating things for our students when they go home is, you know, they, after, uh, after nine months of being immersed in Scripture and seeing that Jesus is much more than a ticket to heaven, much more than someone to try to be like, but that he literally is to be your life, you know, some of our students go home and, uh, and are very, they end up being depressed and frustrated because they, they go back into their home churches, they go back to their friends, and they find that there's nothing but conflict with them. One student told me, one, one former student told me that he went home and he was visiting with a number of his friends one night and they were all talking about the issues that are going on in their, their local church, their local body. And how these things were so bad, so horrible and so defeating. And then his friends went on with all the plans that they needed to enact in order to change everything. And our students said to them, listen, we belong to Jesus. He lives in us. He's not dead. He is sovereign. He is more than capable of taking care of these problems. We need to go to him, trust him, and respond to what he's working in our hearts. And this was the reply. He wrote this to me in a letter. He said, this is how they replied to me. Yes, but. Yes, of course Jesus is alive. But. And 
you know, when we need to listen to ourselves. When that word comes out of our mouth, or those words, yes, but, now we're about to say what we really believe. And their next word was we. Yes, but we. Yes, Jesus is alive. Yes, he defeated sin. Yes, he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yes, he is God, but we. If we really want to know, understand what we believe, what do we say after but? One of the leaders, the early leaders of the, the humanistic approach to psychology was a man by the name of Carl Rogers. Now, he didn't start off with this humanistic psychological approach to things. He was actually a, a believer, professed to be a believer anyway, and he attended seminary. He attended the uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York in 1924. He was 22 years of age, and while he was there, there was a seminar that he attended and participated in. It was a, semin uh, a seminar that was, had been organized to explore religious doubts. So all these students came together and they began to discuss and think through all of these doubts. And this is what he said about that time. He says, the majority of members, in thinking their way through questions they had raised, thought themselves right out of religious work. I was one of them. It has, it, 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 it's been pointed out that we cannot doubt something without simultaneously trusting something else. I believe we cannot doubt God without simultaneously trusting in Satan or trusting in ourselves. I think we see this repeated throughout Scripture. I see it with Adam and Eve. You know, they, they were created, and we find in the, that they were created in the image of God by His very life. We find at the end of chapter 2 that they were naked and unashamed. They are living God-conscious, not self-conscious. But then when the thought comes that they could be just like God, and they take from the fruit, we find that all of a sudden they realize they are naked. They're no longer naked and unashamed. Now they are naked, they know it, and they clothe themselves with leaves. They, be, they are no longer God-conscious, but self-conscious, simultaneous. Also, uh, moving on through Scripture, after Adam and Eve, we see the ten bad spies. God said in, in uh, Exodus chapter 3, he tells Moses that I will bring you out of Egypt to the land of the, all the ites. He says, I'm going to do this. I will bring you out to bring you in. That's the whole reason for being brought out. It wasn't to be left in the wilderness. That was their decision. And why did they make that decision? Because when they had gone in to spy out the land, they came back to give a report. And their report was this, that it's everything that God said it would be. God has not lied. Nevertheless, we are not able. Isn't that amazing? God says very clearly, I am going to do this. They go, they see that God has brought them to the very point of taking them in, and they say, we are not able. And then Paul addressing the Galatians. He's upset with them for something. What is it? 
In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3, he says this, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And this, was, this, this is the, 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 the issue. This is the thing that I tell you that I, that I struggled with for years and continue to battle with. I believe that, you know, that this is, this is the thing. You know, I, I, I'll, certain things will happen to me, I'll, certain experiences, you know, whatever the trial may be, and often my first instinct is not, Lord Jesus, praise God, you are in control. It's more like, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? We believe that Jesus can get us out of hell and take us to heaven, but we do not believe that the Jesus that can get us out of hell and take us to heaven can keep us from experiencing hell all the way to heaven. But that's not what Scripture explains. It's for in Him, Colossians 2, 9 and 10, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, you have been made complete and He is the head of all rule and authority. In Him, we find all of God. In Him, we have the certainty of Him being in control. All rule and authority. And You know, why can't we say, with the writer of the book of Hebrews, when he reminds us of Scripture in chapter 13, and he says this, he says, what will man do to me? I will never leave, nor will I ever forsake. Any thoughts before we go on? Yes, sir. That's right. Two did believe, to, you know, in spying out the land, and those two got to go in. When we encounter trials of life and choose to live abiding in our doubts and hopelessness, we're really saying that Jesus is dead. Do you see the living Jesus? In verse 8, after encountering the angels and they're saying, do you remember what he said to you? In verse 8, we read, they remembered his words. What were the words in verse 7? That he must die and rise. In verse 31, the two walking along the road to Emmaus, in their encountering Jesus, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then in verse 45, after Jesus appears in the room with all the apostles, after they see him and touch him, watch him eat. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And again, what was it in the next verse? It was to know that Jesus had to die and come back to life. Seeing Jesus alive, recognizing Jesus to be alive, changed the course of their life. Has it changed yours? In Acts chapter 9, Paul, who had been fervently trying to serve his God by persecuting the church or going into homes, arresting them, dragging them out of their homes is what he did for doing exactly what you and I are doing right now. 
On his way to Damascus to continue this activity, he comes face to face with Jesus. And what is it that changes everything? You see, he knows this about Christ at this point. He knows that Christ came. He knows what Christ did. He knows that Christ was killed. But what changes him is this encounter coming to realize that Jesus is alive. Who are you, Lord, was his question. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And this changed the course of his life. So much to the point that he was able to say this in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. The man who was just so active for God says this, I can do all things through him. The word through means on account of or because of him who strengthens me. And in the context there, you're saying, I can do with a little and I can do with a lot. It doesn't matter because I can do all things through him because of Jesus who strengthens me. Here in this passage, we move on and we see that the gospel is given. In verse 46, we see the proclamation which explains to us what Christ must do. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. So here's the proclamation. This is what Christ must do. This is the gospel. Christ must what? He must suffer and rise. He was clear about this throughout his ministry. And they didn't catch it, and I, I'm not looking down. I'm not putting them down for it. You know, well, maybe I should, because my next word would say, because I would do the same thing. Well, that doesn't make it right. <laughs> but I can identify with this, because I struggle with this today. You know, Jesus died, but do I really believe that Jesus is alive? Do I really believe that he is the head of all rule and authority? What you do is what you believe. What are you believing? Romans 5, 10, very clearly, Paul says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through His death, or through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Much more we shall be saved. We will continue. We are continuing to be saved. If a dying Jesus can reconcile us, what can a living Jesus do? If Jesus is not alive, the benefit of the death is not a reality for us. Because dead people don't minister. The book of Hebrews speaks of Christ being qualified to function as our high priest. In chapter 3, verse 1 of Hebrews, it says that we are to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest. Now, he's talking to believers there, not non-believers. So he's telling believers to consider Jesus. And the word consider there means to fully understand. Take a good, hard look at Jesus. Again, he's telling believers, not unbelievers. And so often, isn't that the last thing we encourage each other with as believers? You know, we want to come up with this formula, this formula, these many steps, or do this and do that. 
and, and we back up all the things we want to do with Scripture. You know, we find Scripture references that will fit what we want to do, that will check all the boxes. But really what we're doing is we're plucking those verses out of context, and we're, we're applying them to my ability. We are to consider, as believers, we are to take a good, hard look at Jesus. We have no problem telling a non-believer that. But is that ever what we encourage each other with? Consider Jesus. Take a good, hard look at Jesus. Jesus is alive. He is not dead. He's the head of all rule and authority. Is He in charge? Is He in control of what you're experiencing right now? Can you trust Him with this? And why do we look to Jesus? Why do we take a good hard look at Jesus? Again, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, it says this. He is our apostle and high priest. The apostle means that he is God's representative to us. And being the high priest means that he is our representative to God. What does that mean? That means right now, despite what's going on in our life, right now, if we have placed our faith in Christ, we are in fellowship with God because Jesus is alive, seated at the right hand, ministering as our apostle and high priest. He is your high priest. What qualifies him to be the high priest? Well, in Hebrews 5.5, 5, it says this, So also Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What, is, what day is it? What does it mean? First of all, what does it mean to be begotten? I mean, this is one of the words we use a lot as believers, especially at Christmas time, right? Born. What's that? Born. Born. Okay. Any other ideas? Any other definitions for begotten? Now, we, we've all memorized the verse as children, right? John 3.16. Okay, a uniqueness about Jesus. What's unique about him? He is the Son of God. This is definitely unique. Okay, let me give you a, a, a little clue here. The word begotten means brought forth. So what does it mean here? Today I have begotten you. If we go to Acts chapter 13 and verse 32, it says this, And we preach to you the good news, the gospel, of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So according to this passage, what day is today? The resurrection day. Jesus is brought forth on the resurrection day. This qualifies Him to be your apostle and high priest. Jesus is alive, and being alive, having faced our sin, having dealt with it, defeated it, and left it in the grave, Jesus now, what? He now can minister what was not possible before. He can now be the representative of us before God and God before us. We are once again brought into that relationship that we see in Genesis chapter 3, where God actually comes to walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, to walk with him. Yes, sir? What you're saying is going to help you. He laid aside his God, but he's raised and we're going to see the rest of 
Okay, so he, he's raised, and in that resurrection, we see, we see God. We see, we see the man who is God. We see the one who is sovereign. We see the one who is in control. That's your Jesus. That's the one who lives in you, not a dead man, but a living man who's in charge. The head of all rule and authority. So this is what Christ must do. He must suffer and rise again. So what's our response? What must we do? Christ must suffer and rise our response, what we must do is in verse 47, we must repent. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repent, change of mind. In Acts chapter 3 verse 19 it says, Therefore, repent and return. There's a change here. So that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. Um, my new role with His Hill is, uh, it, it's an alum, I, I'm heading up the ministry to the alumni. One of the ways we're doing this is to, we're putting together a podcast. And hopefully next month we'll start uploading the podcasts. They'll be uploaded once uh, once a week. And uh, so right now what we're doing is we're making the recordings. And one of the things, we're, we're doing devotions with that, but we're also doing interviews. And so I've, I've interviewed some of the staff, interviewed John, some of the other teachers, and recently Charlie and I sat down to do an interview. And in that interview, Charlie and I started to talk about repentance. Uh, it, was, it was an encouraging discussion for me it uh, just so happened that the Lord was working you know, thoughts in my, my mind that day about repentance. And then Charlie brings it up in the, in the conversation that we had, and we started to talk about this. And basically, in the conversation, this is what we came to. We're to change our mind. Basically, that's what it means with repentance, to change. But what is it that we're changing our minds about? You see, we're to be changing our minds from a dependency on us to a dependency on Jesus. Isn't that what you remember from the moment of entrusting your life to Christ, when that moment when you believed in Him? What was it where you came to this point where you realized, I cannot save myself? That only Jesus can? I believe, I entrust my life to you, Lord Jesus. It was a changing of your mind from being dependent upon you to being dependent upon Christ. But Colossians 2.6 says what? As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. A repentance, a changing of your mind. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. There's a changing of our mind. Now that we're saved doesn't mean now there's something that, you know, we're fixed up in such a way now that we can be a little better and that we can do what we need to do so we can be, you know, pleasing to God. There's nothing good in the flesh, Paul says. So what is it? We're changing. We continue to live a life of changing our mind, changing our mind of dependence upon me to dependence upon Jesus. This is the reverse of what Adam did. 
in Genesis chapter 3. When he and his wife looked and thought that they could be like God. And that really, that fits what salvation is. It's a restoration. Your salvation is a restoration. We have been restored back to that which we have fallen from. To live God-conscious and not self-conscious. And this, this is to be our witness. Both the death and the life of Christ. These references I have on the screen are all references to messages, sermons that were given in Acts. You're hard-pressed to find one that doesn't talk. When they talk about the death of Christ, they also talked about the resurrection of Christ because this is the gospel. Jesus who died is alive. And this witnessing is not only to be a reality in what we say, Often, that's what we think of, you know, we're a witness, okay, so it's what we say. But no, it's what we say and what we do. It's really a lifestyle. In Hebrews chapter 13, we read this, After showing that Jesus is better than any other good thing, through Him then, verse 15, let us continually... So it's not, you know, it's, it's not just on Sunday morning or it's not just when we walk into a situation, but we are to continually offer up sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice, we know throughout Scripture, when you look at the sacrificial system, it was never convenient. It was always costly. We are to, what, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips. So in everything continually in what we say, that give thanks to His name, and do not neglect doing good, so continually doing good, everything that we do, and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This is the witness. This is the witness that is to be from us our life. In all that we say and all that we do, how do we do that? You know, it's, it's you know, neat to say and then look at the verses and go, yeah, that should be, but how do we do this? Well, I'm left with the thing we've been talking about. Jesus is alive. You see, the very next verse, after, saying, after the, the proclamation, what Jesus must do, what we must do, repent. Jesus must die and come back to life. We must repent. How do we live this kind of witness that is a lifestyle in all that we do and all that we say? In verse 49, we find the enabling to live such a witness. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is our enabling. Again, in Acts, and because of time, I won't read all these passages, but here we find in all these passages the promise of the power, Christ's very power being known by His indwelling Holy Spirit. We find in the, in, in the passage here in verse, chapter 4, verse 8, and again in chapter 13 and verse 9, both of these are reference to being filled with the Spirit, they then went on and dressed whatever was before them being filled with the Spirit. This was the activity of Christ Himself. Major Thomas said it like this, 
good works are those works that have their origin in Jesus Christ, whose activity is released through your body, presented to Him as a living sacrifice by a faith that expresses total dependence as opposed to the endemic independence. The enabling to live the life that we were created for, the enabling to be the witness that we're to be, is His very life in us. Not His death in us, though we need the death for the life to bring the benefit of His very life, His very image. When I was in college, I had a professor that encouraged us when reading... And he said that you can, he said, this is a, a standard. He said, if, if, this is a, if it's a good author, then all you need to do is read the first and the last sentence of each paragraph. And then go back and read the rest of the paragraph in between the first and last sentence. He said, if you read, if you learn to read this way, then you will be able to track and understand better what the author is trying to say. Now, being who I am and like I am, all I heard him say was read the first and last sentence of each paragraph. <laughs> and I got through a lot of books pretty quickly. <laughs> but I found something interesting with that is that, you know, when I do that, I do get a better grasp of what, he's, what the author's trying to say. In other words, he was telling us that if you read the first and the last sentence, you do that to get the context of the paragraph, then you read the middle of the paragraph to get the details of the context. I suggest the same with the beginning and the end of this chapter. You see the beginning starts with this. Knowing that Christ has died and is in the grave, then we come into this chapter, but, verse 1, then the ending of the chapter, verse 52, Great joy, verse 53, praising God. Jesus has died and he's in the grave, but there's great joy and praising God because of the details. Jesus is not dead, but has risen and now by the Holy Spirit lives in me, verses 2 to 5. What an incredible chapter. Swindoll says this, The devil darkens and death may swagger and boast. The pangs of life will sting for a while longer. But don't worry. The forces of evil are breathing their last. Not to worry. He is risen. And the hymn that we are so familiar with, In all the world around me I see his loving care. And though my heart grows weary, I never will despair. I know that He is leading through all the stormy blast. The day of His appearing will come at last. Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian. Lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ, the King, the hope of all who seek Him, the help of all who find. None other is so loving, so good and kind. He lives. 
He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. And he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. You see, folks, this is not an academic reality. This is for the believer to be an experiential reality. Jesus is alive, so we live. Any thoughts? arrows that the Satan has in his quiver is doubt, deception, and fear. And he uses those as an attack on us and starting from the garden to keep us away from truly giving our heart into knowing the life of Jesus and walking with, with him. And so we always we try to avert us going back and taking care of everything on our own without yeah, I think that for the, as far as the believer is concerned, Satan's fine with us believing that Jesus died. But boy, he doesn't want us thinking about the fact that he's alive. Any other thoughts? All right. Then, let's pray. John, would you lead us? Thank you, God, for the encouragement from your word and from this reality of faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Next week, Jack is uh, up here, and you're going to be in 1 Thessalonians, right, Jack? Yes. All right. <laughs>